And I distinctly remember coming out of the train station and crossing over the road to draw some money out from the Tesco's to get to get something to eat. And the amount of stares that I was getting, and my hair wasn't as like, it was a bit more tamed, let's say. It wasn't as big. I hadn't mm-hmm. grown it out. I had it very, very short, like tight curls. But I just remember feeling really uncomfortable. Welcome to At Home in the Mind. We interrupt our scheduled program to amplify black voices. Warning, this episode contains mentions of racial microaggressions and suicidal thoughts. Listener discretion is advised. As ever, I would like to stipulate that myself and the guests who come on this show can only talk from our own perspective, understanding that everyone experiences life and mental health issues in different ways. Thank you for listening. Hi, Andy. Thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thank you very much, Vicky. Thank you for having me. I thought we would start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So what was it like for you growing up in the UK as a black man? So, well, this whole, personally, I've never really, I've never really identified as like fully black, which kind of makes sense because my mom's white and my dad's black. So I've always been, felt really comfortable fitting into the mixed race umbrella, let's say. But certainly even physical features my hair, my lip, they certainly are, you know, would be considered stereotypically black features. So for me, but I completely understand it when all the mixed race people, why they more particularly identify as black rather than mixed race. But in my case, I would say, I would say more mixed race. It's a spectrum, isn't it? At the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, of course. Um, I think when you're, when you're mixed, it's something that I will come back to the original question, but it's just whilst we're on the topic, it's something that I've always, uh, felt like which one am I and I'm sure Mm -hmm. there's so many mixed race people as well or even not necessarily just mixed race but even people from two different cultures you know if you've if you've got parents from one country and the other and you feel like well am I am I English or am I this or am am I so there's that to and fro but anyway coming back to growing up so when I found out that you you know you'd invited me to to come on this and um and really appreciate the opportunity I obviously began thinking and really reflecting on, on everything. And even before you invited me to come on this as well, I think one of the main things that's made me feel seeing the Black Lives Matter movement come into the spotlight, the global spotlight at the moment, seeing the images and the, the police brutality and, and everything really that's ensued from that. It's been tough, but it's been really good because it's, it's made me reflect in a way that I haven't really reflected before. Reflected from time to time and I've thought about bits about self-esteem and mental health issues. And I'm someone who, well, being gay and being mixed race as well, like the more the former being being gay is, has affected my mental health than being mixed race. And coming back again to the original question, like how I've grown up, I'm very fortunate that being mixed race or being in, you know, my dad's being black, that, that hasn't affected me as much as it certainly has affected and will have affected and continues to affect people living in living in the United States. So yeah, obviously for for anyone who who listens to this who doesn't who doesn't know me personally, I'm from the northwest. I'm of England. I'm from the Wirral, a small peninsula, which is very very nice next to between Chester and Liverpool and. My brother, my mum and dad and all the rest of my family are, are from Liverpool. 
that's important to mention as well because Liverpool was built on the slave trade and it wouldn't be the incredible city with its amazing skyline and, and the wealth that it's, it's got today without that. And I think what's a really good thing about potentially why we haven't been seeing scenes of statues getting pulled down like we've seen in Bristol of mm-hmm. uh, former slave trade owners in Liverpool because I think Liverpool's always been very aware of the past. I would definitely be with my family coming from there and from what I've heard from them. I'm pretty sure to say that Liverpool, in comparison to many other cities in the United Kingdom, has a really good a really good demographic, a really good mix and um, a very low tolerance to racism. That doesn't mean that it's not there. I don't know if I've gone off a bit. No, no, no. Not yeah. sure. But you feel, you feel that it's mindful about its past and I'm not sure if you went to school near Liverpool, but at your school, yeah. did you feel that it was addressed in a way that made students mm-hmm. feel like there are reparations to be had or, you know, to face a, a, a difficult truth? basically mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a really good question i would say no without trying to cast my mind back quite a few years <laughs> now <laughs> worryingly no honestly I, I can't think of any time where it was addressed in terms of slavery or or liverpool's past or you know merseyside for, for that matter that knowledge and that education i got i'm very fortunate i got from my family who knew all that and mm. as, as well i should mention that kind of makes even more sense not not just being black in Liverpool but my my granddad is from Liberia and he well there's so much that we don't know but Liberia being the center of where within West Africa where scores countless thousands millions millions of slaves went on their their, their fateful journey he didn't he didn't come on the slave trade but very probably and very likely that either him or his family were were slaves, mm-hmm. um, and my great grandfather. So my my nan, who was mixed race like me, her father was from Barbados, which was also populated by by slaves. So I guess I was aware of that thanks to my thanks to my background. But now I would honestly say that that there's a, a, a huge need right now, and there's no better time than now to yeah. really address to address that lack within the education system because it's so wrong how not even like British colonialism, it just, the mind boggles as to how it is allowed that that is not in our curriculum. But another thing as well, which as I was talking to, well, to David, one of our one of our best friends in terms of being LGBTQ+, or for both of us being gay men, is a lot of the homophobia that, was either indirect or that we did suffer being traumatic. And for me as well, and I don't know about David, but the fear of being found out or of being attacked is like, you live with that every single day. And me as well, I was like, I'm a very kind of fatalistic person. So I was thinking worst case scenario if my, if my family or my parents found out. And to be honest, whilst we're on the topic of race, I've never ever said this before. I don't even think to my family, but one thing that certainly did, did prey on my mind with race and being gay was that I thought because my dad was black, I automatically assumed, and because, and that, you know, African as well, like his dad, you know, Liberian, that even though he'd been and is an amazing father and I couldn't ask for a, for a better dad, I was really worried that his reaction would be way worse than I'd convinced myself from such a young age. And I'd, I'd known 
from a very young age, I always knew that when I would eventually tell them that my mo- I would be fine with my mum because we were, were so close, but I just convinced myself that my dad was going to throw me out because he was black. So it's almost like being racist towards my father kind of thing, mm. which is crazy. Mm. But um, coming back to how I've suffered from it, but I think I've probably actually er- erased a lot of the traumatic maybe experiences or things that, not necessarily traumatic, but things that have really made me feel uncomfortable because I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have, as I already said before, an amazing education, amazing friends, the opportunities that I've had and just generally positive. So, you know, you try and forget about the, like it's it's your mind trying to, to defend itself and, and trying to forget the, the horrible occurrences. I can think of two though that I'd like to just mention and really in retrospect in comparison to being killed or having violence sure. or like that it's it's really worlds apart so you know disclaimer as i've said several times that yeah it's my own experiences and i've been very fortunate but from from the first day of primary school so we're, we're starting quite early i don't recall it happening but i know it happened because that's how i met my first friend and who's my best friend for years I was in the class and with the teacher and the exercise was to draw ourselves and our parents and um, I'd draw my mum and dad and I'd drawn my mum like just like a, a kind of like a ghost like just white. <laughs> and then I'd draw my dad like brown or black and yeah. I'd, put, I'd draw myself as white done the same as, as my mum which is interesting actually when I think back on it because me and my mum were like we're like, we're like best friends mm-hmm. I had this uh, lad next to me, Tom, who went on to become one of my best friends. And there was another kid as well who commented on the picture when he saw it and said something along the lines of, why are you drawing that? You're brown with, with big hair and big lips or something and a big nose. I don't know whether I cried or whether I, I didn't like or I didn't say anything, but Tom went straight to the teacher and told the teacher and that's how we became friends. And my mum told me before... Yeah, my mum told me before that that kid actually, he left the school, the primary school. But a bit concerning though that at five years old that you're coming out with stuff like that. So probably Five? From, yeah. Wow. Probably from parenting. That. Yeah. And then the, the second instance was, <laughs> I seem to have a bit of a theme here, the people who say these things, well, inherently, if they're saying something racist, they're not good people themselves. But it was in secondary school and he's actually in jail now because he went on to become a murderer. So, yes. Um, That's, whoa, okay. Yeah, quite, quite, quite deep the way I just say it so candidly. Um, <laughs> oh, he was, in that, he was a nasty piece of work. Um, I'm not even going to say his name because, God forbid, he gets out of prison and comes after me. But um, it was one instance in English in GCSE and well, he commented and said, oh, my lips again, like big lips or something. Right. The school I went to, and I will sing its praises, Church High School. I was harking back on my on my time there through 2003 to 2008 because I still got all the prom pictures. And so that cohort of five years, there was not one black, and I'm talking like both both black parents right. or, or right. dark dark darker skin than than I am in the entire school. And there was there's more than 1,200 pupils. And again, okay, we're in the northwest. We're on the Wirral, so the Wirral is despite being right next to Liverpool, the demographics are, that's a, a stark difference. So the reason why I was talking about that as well is in a positive light, despite there not being much diversity at all, and I was probably one of five people of colour in the school and everyone else being 
white as far as I can remember. I'm pretty sure other than that instance where this guy who went on to become the murderer said this in the class, I remember that even though I was really upset by that. I'm not a confrontational person until I'm pushed into the, into the corner kind of thing or my buttons are pushed. I was also very lucky that I was very popular and had loads of loads of friends and school. And so as soon as he said that, everyone in the class was on him. Not physically, but was like, oh, sure. you know, you can't say that. And, you know, oh, we're telling Miss. And, and I think she was out of the room, actually. And so then the teacher came back and then it wasn't even me. So that just that's just a testament to how lucky I was with the mm-hmm. with the friends and with the allies in the school. They were the ones who reported it to the teacher. And then that was like an actual formal. My dad had to come in and so did my mum and they had to talk to the, the head teacher and he was expelled for a month or something. Wow. Um, so yeah, so they were they were no tolerance in the school. I think it was really the ethos of this and still continues to this day. Like it's an incredible school and the teachers really care. So even though must have forgotten about it, well, not the next day, but you know, he wasn't in it. He, he didn't play an important part of my life in school. Well, it was like a reoccurring theme, even though in primary school, I say that it's happened once, but it probably has happened more times without me remembering. That's something that did affect my self-esteem. Mm. Uh, I was always very conscious about my lips. Um, only up until recently where I've like really come to really recently, just like last summer, due to loads of different factors. But the people that I was surrounding myself with, my family who continue to be my rock, and the friends uh, was living. I was in Spain for the past two years in in Granada in the south, teaching English as well. So I can't say exactly at what point, but last year was a turning point in terms of acceptance of how I look, race, and also my sexuality. So onwards and upwards. That's great. That's awesome. Thank you. Cheers. And you were saying that where you experienced a lot of mental health pressure and issues was it was very tightly wound with your sexuality and how your dad might perceive you. Yeah. Did you feel any prejudice within the LGBTQ community? So glad you asked that question. On the sidelines or were you protected and embraced in the community? Yeah. So glad you asked you asked that question because one certainly not feeling desirable, not feeling that I don't fit in neither one nor the other. Like this kind of mixed race thing. Like I don't want it to come across as like, oh, I'm so, I'm so confused and I'm so torn because I'm, I'm am I white and I'm black? No, it's it's not that. I, I know like that's what in decades gone by, or even still, some people today they think like the comments that my mum used to hear of like, oh, but I feel bad for the children because they they're neither one nor the other. And this whole thing about being half cast, right. you know, like yeah. um, like a half breed and stuff. And, and when I say that, I don't want to perpetuate that. It's more when you feel comfortable within a certain dynamic. I think there's a certain paradigm, and I'm talking about here, the context that I know that I've grown up in. Just even thinking of going into gay clubs and stuff certainly changed over and diversified a lot more over the past few years. But when I went into my first gay club when I was like 18 or something, very few. People of colour don't even know if I've seen, if I saw any black people. I think racism, whether it be indirect or direct, it's always been there. It's always kind of like here in the UK, as I said before, it's concealed or it's like just under the surface. And so 
that's always made me very self-aware and my perception and aware of the space, the spaces that I inhabit and that I go through and not just like the physical features as well, which make me stand out, you know? And so I've always shied away from the, the gay community because I'm sure whoever else will come on here who is LGBT or I haven't listened to David's podcast yet, but I'm sure that he will agree that we can be so homophobic towards ourselves and so bigoted and it's just it's terrible and all the labeling and all the boxes that you've got to fit fit or fit in and the hoops you've got to go through and if you're not this is just my impression but if you're not white if you're not a top if you're not between 18 and 30 you know relatively young let's say still then you're not high up on the on the the packing your packing order you're not high up on the ladder and so let's just say for me that my sexuality it's part of my identity but it's not being something which I think that in many positive ways that people really get involved um, and integrate themselves into the gay community actively, be it with friends, with going out frequently, just the whole social life around it in order to help them and, and get them through difficult times and give them that support network. I think I, sh- I shied away from it from what I just mentioned about the race and, mm-hmm. and not really feeling too welcome or that I didn't look like anyone else that I was in that room with or the friends, let's say. I mean, actually, when I think about it, until university, I didn't have any LGBT people of colour friends, pretty sure. And if and if the, if I've got a friend who listens to this who says, what about me? How could you forget me? Then I'm, I'm very sorry. Because on right now, off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone. And, but what I wanted to say positively for me, though, because I, I had such, I had so many friends that I, I didn't, I didn't need to use that. I didn't need that as mm. a support network. However, it really would have helped me in terms of accepting myself because I've realised that now over the past two years, surrounding, not surrounding myself, but just like they just coming into my life. So many amazing musicians, people of colour, and and gay, all all the whole, you know, all together, the, the three of them at the same time, that's really just catapulted me into a, a more accelerated self-acceptance, what should have been years ago, because yeah. frankly, again, privilege, not just being lighter skinned in the black community, being mixed race, but also my entire family accepted me. All my cousins, I didn't tell them all at once, and my dad was the last one to, to find out. Right. Um, and all my friends... Literally, there wasn't one person, I think, who rejected me. And if they did, then they weren't important to me in the first place. So amazing! very, very lucky. Yeah. And also talking about that with cousins as well, I think um, for me, why it hasn't affected me, um, racism, so much that it has for other people, be it within my family who were darker. An interesting fact, I think, or I can't remember when I first like realised this or thought about it, it was only in, in when I was either a teenager or in later life. All my, well, let's say all my, all my dad's family, all the uncles, they all either married or partners were white women. So right. all my cousins, we are all mixed the same. And so we all look remarkably similar. And I think that's really helped having those role models because not only I didn't look up to them just because they I look like them, that's just a a coincidence um but it's an added bonus but on top of that some of them are absolutely incredible people and i look up to them and yeah i think we was very lucky in, in my family and that we're not perfect and but nonetheless it made me realize that it's for me I, I it's not a given 
that people's families, not only do they, I'm not saying that we all get on, but more or less, you know, uh, as, a, as a majority, we, we do get on pretty well and we, we do love each other. But I think like it is a lottery, isn't it? When, mm-hmm. when you don't choose your family, you don't choose where you're born, what, you know, what race you are or religion and so on and so forth. So I think we've been really lucky in terms of, for example, I was talking to this with a, a very good friend of mine, um, a white friend, about how in her family or one of her friends in her family, the girl was mixed race and her white grandmother was incredibly racist towards her and was... Towards not, her own granddaughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, maybe not incredibly, but was still racist towards her and didn't accept, you know, the marriage. That's not an uncommon occurrence. You know, I've heard about that loads of times and stuff, but it made me realise... Well, that could have easily happened in, in our in our family with my, my aunties. As I said, every single family member on my mum's side, her sister as well, black partner, and then all my dads. It's really incredible that like that they haven't experienced when they first went out as like mm-hmm. girlfriend or mm-hmm. even when they had children or when they got married. Does that make sense? So absolutely, yeah. yeah we're very lucky. So that's a yeah. It a sounds like you you have a very loving and compassionate family, which is wonderful. I mean, you mentioned briefly, uh, but I was wondering if you wouldn't mind going into more detail about how this sort of self-acceptance, the lack of it up to now, manifested. Yeah, that's you're excellent with your questions, because especially with me, who's someone who's just like a million thoughts at once, it's like, right, Andrew, <laughs> channel, channel, be the conduit for those thoughts, channel them. Very low self-esteem and body image, um, particularly with my hair. I mean, I still, I still did it. I still grew my, and it used to be like an absolute afro in school. I used to get called mushroom head and stuff like that. But again, they were there was, there was one. I think there was one lad who used to call me that, and they knew that one. I was a senior prefect, so I'd be like detention now, kind of thing. <laughs> or you know, the teachers loved me, and I was I did very well in school, and I had loads of friends. So I just thought, well, whatever, you know, I don't mm. really care about you. But it certainly. It, there's been a journey when it comes to my hair and my other like facial features, and um, particularly not necessarily colouring my skin because I am a quite light skin. So you know, it's not as in Liverpool anyway. It's not really that much of an issue when I travel, and I love to travel. That's where this, where particularly the the self awareness and the self perception comes into comes into right. play when I'm in more homogenous societies. So like in Japan, for example, when I went to Japan, I was like, God, my hair. I'm taller than everyone else here. Um, and so I, I just feel like I stand out in different places and you just kind of feel people stares on you. And actually one good example is when, I don't know if you did the program in, in Leeds, but the Language Ambassadors program. Um, uh, no, I didn't do that one. So I was working in, in the last year doing that, going into schools and colleges in West Yorkshire to talk about the importance of languages in, in higher education. And... Um, one of the schools I remember I'd gone to, so it was usually you paired up with another, another ambassador who'd meet there and then you would deliver the presentation. This one particular one, somewhere in Yorkshire, I can't remember the name, and I distinctly remember coming out of the train station and crossing over the road to draw some money out from the Tesco's to get, to get something to eat. And the amount of stares that I was getting, and my hair wasn't as like, it was a bit more tamed, let's say. It wasn't as big. I hadn't grown mm-hmm. it out. I had it very, very short, like tight curls. But I just remember feeling really uncomfortable where I was. And but yeah, that was an instance that I I wanted to to mention as well because that's more more recent. So I, I could remember that. Oh goodness, coming back to your question, um, talking to people, having amazing friends, 
I think it's if only we could open our minds and read them just like a book, you know, because then you could just unravel every mental health issue that you mm. that we all have. But sadly, it's the most difficult puzzle box there is, isn't there, at the end of the day? And so I think small seeds have been planted over the years of comments like this and small things like that. And because I'm a sensitive person as well, I am not thick-skinned and I really care about what people think of me even still to this day, which is a thing I need to sort out. A people pleaser. And I think those comments, once in a blue moon, let's say, from the ones that I can remember, or microaggressions or people staring or or even, you know, even seeing things more recently. I first got Tinder when I was in, in my last year. So I was 21 because my first boyfriend had had uh, one of my very good friends now and that was like a whole, I, I owe him, I owe him so much as well because he's from, from Lebanon and we became very good friends as well. We met one when I was in Montreal. Like before him, I'd only been attracted to the people that I was, I was around, which were white guys in my secondary school and, and college and stuff. So they were, the, they were the guys that I was attracted to. And then I met him and he's from, he's Lebanese. And, and then since then, I'm like, whoa. There's everyone's attractive and there's yes. all these like, there's all yeah. these all these beautiful people from all over the world and then you know that's how I started to he taught me a lot of Arabic and then I went to I mean and then the passion from for all that part of the world and on <laughs> Tinder after meeting him when I first got it that was when I first my I saw and, and Grinder as well I had Grinder for one day and then I, I haven't had it since then but like I was gonna say as well you know each to their own and that's like no no shaming on it whatsoever it's just it might what what it was on tinder I saw some interested comments like you know in terms of preferences that's what it was on tinder and then on grinder why it lasted for one day that's when I saw all these profiles saying no blacks no Asians no Latinos it was like whites and I was like what what the actual so it was mind-blowing to to see stuff like that and that I straight away deleted it and it also it, it was scared me because the way you can like see where the other person is in the position oh uh, yeah that's weird and what were yeah. the preferences on tinder what was oh like i think it's more along the lines of like fetish you know seeing comments like you still see it now but like black guys to the front or like latinos to the front or it's interestingly enough, like not white guys to the front, but like, you know, certain, well, I mean, I don't have that much of a, of an issue with that, even though I think it's still problematic in itself because it's just sure. like, it's an entire race. Like how can you, you, you haven't met everyone who's white, who's black, who's Asian, who's Latin, like everything in between. And goodness me, even or, or, you know, uh, Middle Eastern, whatever, like I've, you see Lebanese or Syrian people who, or, or the whole of the Middle East, blonde hair, blue eyes, and then you go to very dark. And so, so there's a whole, so it's just stupid saying stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how it made me feel, because I'm an impressionable person and people's, as I said, it's a weakness that their opinion matters, then seeing those things, I haven't, still not, but I'm much better, but I wasn't strong enough to not let that affect me. Mm. So on top of already being like, well, I was, for so long I was like, why why am i why am i gay why did i have to be gay and for so long i really fought against it even though and it was all me my work you know we're our own worst enemies because as i said again no rejection from family no rejection from friends so what is the issue here but it was all me in my head but then on top of that seeing okay right we're in the gay community now or we're, we're navigating this space 
And on top of that, then saying, oh, you're not, you're not the paradigm. You're not the most desirable. So yeah, so it, it affected my self-esteem a lot. And, and then a vicious cycle of still not want to be gay and just be like, well, uh, if only I could be straight and stuff like that. But I very rarely say that now. Very, very rarely. Whereas in the past, I used to say it quite a lot. <laughs> okay, I'm glad that you rarely say that now. Do you feel like you found your your little micro community within the LGBTQ community now? Yeah, yeah. I think um, representation is is everything, isn't it? At the end of the day, and even though I think, as far as I know, I'm the only I'm the only gay person in, in my family. But particularly over, particularly after after university, going to Spain or having the opportunity with doing two languages, going to Spain and going to Montreal. I mean, Montreal is just like so diverse and beautifully diverse like an absolutely incredible place it has one of the biggest gay communities in the entire world it's called le village the, the gay village and so there you know you, you really feel i never felt that i stood out in montreal at all you felt um, represented and welcomed and yeah it's so it's so diverse and i'm sure that would be the same in just like in liverpool you know i don't feel like i stand up there and and in you know in london as well like goodness mates and it depends it depends on where you are where you mm-hmm. are doesn't it at the, end mm-hmm. of the day However, in a positive, I really feel after the turn in a new chapter uh, last summer, being in, in Granada, it was like I really, I really begun to embrace myself. And I know it sounds like wishy-washy, but or it might seem like that to me because it's kind of like it must have, when people used to say, oh, you, know, you need to embrace yourself and you need to love yourself. If you can't love yourself, how's somebody else going to love you and stuff like that? But that tangible, like that feeling goes from being intangible to you really feeling it. I never would have imagined or envisaged that I would get to a point where like, I actually look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I, I, I love that I look like this or I love that I've got this the mixed heritage and, mm. and hair and everything. And, and that's like, I wish it had happened sooner and in, in a way, like only one regret, but that's just the journey at the end of the day. Or yeah, I'm envious of people who, who are so unapologetically themselves and, I think that is the best strength that you can have is just to own who you are, your identity and just be yourself. But it's it's so hard. It's really, it's hard. really hard. And even people who, who seem like they are encapsulating that, they can't possibly be encapsulating it every day. And a lot of the time it's it's a front, you know, and in enacting that feeling, you you end up actually feeling it. Yeah, true. So you make it, yeah. Exactly, because you put yourself in that character. You know, what's this character who loves themselves? Not, and you sort of end up embodying that character. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Which is why it's never worth comparing yourself to others because you don't know what's going on uh, behind that, everything. The friend who, uh, who I've spoken to you about, uh, one of my very, very close and dearest friends, if it's a quote of hers, then amazing. If not, still beautiful quotes. She said, comparison is the thief of joy. Oh, positives of quarantine, though, whilst we're here, is that I found that because I'm not going out into public because, well, this is a whole like other conversation which we may have um, in a bit and stuff, but my, my dad's shielding and he's one of the most vulnerable and we unfortunately had a bereavement, my dad's sister, from the virus. Oh, I'm sorry. So it's been, I appreciate it, thank you, because in my family, in my dad's side of the family, and it's particularly prevalent in in, in black 
Africans. Well, no, not just black. Af- yeah, maybe black African males, but my auntie had it as well. I'm um, kidney failure. And right. it is the dad, it is genetic. And so due to that, so long story short, my dad had a transplant nearly 10 years ago and my auntie had a transplant as well. But three other, one who also, who's also passed away a few years ago and two others of my uncles who, who are still alive, they are still on dialysis. They, you know, haven't, Right. Fortunately, haven't had a kidney transplant yet. However, with having a kidney transplant or any transplant, you are immune suppressed. You have to take immunosuppressant drugs every day in order for the body to not reject the mm-hmm. transplanted organ. And so this is why they are at the top of the list in terms of vulnerable. And we know now that COVID somehow, I don't know the science behind it, but is dis- disproportionately affecting people of colour and particularly black yeah. people. Yeah. And so because... I haven't been going out, none of us have, because we're so worried about my dad getting anything. And because my auntie, because she passed away from it, he is just as likely and vulnerable to have a very fatal or lethal reaction or whatever to it. But one of the weird positives from that, of not going out, not that, but not going out in general, is I don't compare myself because I'm not seeing anyone. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not, yeah. I'm not outside, so I'm not in society. I don't see anyone else but my family or a few friends here and mm-hmm. there back on the road. And so I think my self-esteem is just like <laughs> skyrocketed. <laughs> That's great. I completely get that feeling because as, as someone who's not on the career ladder. And this... Me and, neither. I'm yeah. me neither, don't worry. And so this has been awesome for me in that respect because there's not that comparison of, oh, they're already buying a house and they're already on this sort of salary and they're already blah, blah, blah because everyone is on pause. <laughs> it's like, oh, great, I don't have to race anymore. It's okay. <laughs> no one's racing at the moment. That's great. They're all going at my pace. Awesome. That is so true. That is so true. So I completely get your comparison thing. Yeah, it goes out of the window. It's awesome. It's so liberating. And hopefully it's something that we can sort of practice afterwards and everything does as it is at the moment pick back up again it's something that you can sort of carry on with you maintain yeah that awareness everything is transient everything is i don't want to say everything's meaningless at the end of the day but it's it's shown people the priorities isn't it and it's made people really think about what is the priority in their lives exactly no matter how much money you've got you know it, it doesn't buy immunity from this horrible disease so yeah yeah but i'm glad that it's uh that's one of the one of the positives I've found. Supposed with um, these shreds of positivity, with like with how I'm feeling at the moment, it's just like lost, mm-hmm. <laughs> just like my drive at the moment. And I think everyone though, yeah, everyone's just the, the uncertainty is is huge. So yeah, you're completely right. Everyone's feeling the weird pressure from the uncertainty, the fear of the uncertainty. What I've been advising my friends because this is the only way that I've that I've survived is to actually grasp the uncertainty and realize that life has never been certain. The certainty that you felt has been an illusion. This is just a great exercise in, in, in actually putting into action living in the present because that's all you can do because it is so uncertain. But actually life has always been this uncertain. Any plans you put in place, life might lobber. You don't know what life has got in its you know, arsenal. <laughs> just like throw in this grenade at any moment it's wonderful that depiction was yeah so true yeah goodness me see my mom she's amazing at doing that she always says and like i often think i often feel i've felt like the odd one out in my family not like not in a bad way at all yeah but like just just as these kind of fleeting reflections from time to time like 
I'm not a Taurus. My mum and dad and brother are all Tauruses. Uh-huh. I'm the only one born in October. And then I'm the only one who's gay. And I'm the only one who's like musical or into languages or is like this nomad. And I just like love traveling and I just mm-hmm. like live everywhere. But I think they're all, none of them are stresses. And I am such a stressor <laughs> on anything. And like, honestly, even I guess the point where I tell myself, I, I think, Andrew, you're going to kill, you, you're killing yourself. Like the amount of stuff, like but insignificant things and really stressing over it. And my mum has always said, live in the now, just live in the now. And I still struggle, but. Have you explored whether you have anxiety? I think being LGBT is, I'm not saying that that's a prerequisite in order to be open to mental health. I'm just saying that I think you're more, uh, there's a predisposition there. From a young age, you just have to be, you're aware of that you're different. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, I think from a young age, you you notice that and that makes you have this like introspectiveness. And so I think that also leads quite nicely into being quite mentally aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everyone, but I think definitely in my case, I'm, one of my strengths is speaking about my feelings, being able to articulate them to my amazing friends and family that I've got. And so uh, I've explored it. I'm not sure. I don't. It's not been diagnosed. I mean, two, two very, two of my best friends. They both suffer from anxiety, and we talk about it very openly, and we're we're there for each other. And the first time I felt it, very first time, and it was horrible. And I really have empathy. I was overworking myself or being overworked in my former company and I actually work there again now. So I was doing stupid hours, like getting in at nine and being the last person to leave the office. Like this security guard would kick me out at like half, half 10 or they used to close at 11 o'clock. This was during a six month period. It wasn't the entire time. I was doing this extra assignment thing. And so I still, well, up until coronavirus, would on a on a weekly basis go to the Liverpool Philharmonic because one of my great other passions in life is classical music. And so I'd go two, three times a week. And I distinctly remember once with all the stress of work and doing these stupid hours and my family constantly telling me, what are you doing? And I'd say, oh, you know, it's only six months. I need it so that I get this on my record and this will help me move, get to there, so on and so forth. And I remember going to a chamber con- a chamber music concert, so a small small audience, and panicking whilst the music was happening and sitting there just this sinking feeling on my chest mm-hmm. being aware of my my pulse and it quickening like this and just feeling it was like flight or fright and you mm-hmm. know yeah when these are normal situations for you to feel that but this was not a normal situation at all and it's something that I'm so used to, I love the, the music and you're meant to... It was meant to be a relaxing, it was meant to be yeah, a yeah. self-care relaxing moment, yeah. Absolutely. And so I had to spend half an hour just sitting there trying to not alert anyone around me because I was thinking, well, I didn't want to leave anyway. It was awkward for me to get out and I didn't want to disrupt it. And it was like, it was Brahms or something. So it was very like peaceful. And for 30 minutes, I just concentrated on my breathing, breathing in and breathing out just because that was what I just thought I can only do to to get out of this situation. And so since then, I never had it like that, that feeling all of a sudden out of nowhere. But I did, you know, there's been vestiges of it where just particularly here, like, you know, I'll show you on my chest, it's like right here, just like really, Mm -hmm. really tight. And that just happens when I overwork myself. And that's my body telling me you need to, you need to chill out.
I don't believe in labeling everything because everything is a spectrum. And I do believe that labels sometimes harm because just as how you introduced your story, you said, you compared yourself again. You said, oh, I don't suffer like my friends suffer. And, and that, that to me is due to labels and due to people, to people feeling that they don't fit into that particular label. Therefore, they are an imposter. They are not that, that thing. And their suffering, however big it is, isn't as valuable, isn't as important as the suffering of those around them. The thing well, is, it's, it's your experience and, and well, it's how it's affecting that, you. That's, well, that's, a, that's a beautiful and very quick, because I want you to continue with what you're saying. That's a beautiful analogy for race as well. And something that I'm slowly but surely realizing as well, my tentativeness at the beginning of this to say, oh, I can't put myself in the, in the black community box, let's say, because... Being an empathetic person and not wanting to take away from other people's suffering and then true suffering, and I'm like, no, no, you know, I, I take my take myself out of that, and that's that's your space. I know that you know that's what I acknowledge my privilege and stuff, but I really appreciate you saying that because it, it shouldn't be. It doesn't. It, it shouldn't necessarily need to be a question of how if you're dark enough to fit into this or uh, you know. At the end of the day, like. My family is still, we, we're still mixed and there's still my dad who is, who is black and we're all very aware of what he's gone through and how we're not immune to it. And, but we're still very grateful and thankful that it's not as bad as it used to be for him, for what he experienced yeah. and that we're, we're so fortunate that reflecting on what's been going on in the States and stuff, one of the main things is like gratefulness that we're... Speaking of the States, how has, how has that situation hit you how has it affected you in ways which i never expected and in both positive and as to be expected negative why i say in ways that i didn't expect is sparking these conversations that we never really had in in the family before so this was really really positive and really good and any any dialogue is is important to, to the conversation and coming back to your question how has it made me feel it's made me shocked really just to realize how difficult people's lives aren't particularly daily lives like I think specifically George Floyd like it's just so visceral and you just you you couldn't take your eyes off it and you couldn't avoid it because it was everywhere on social media as horrible for the family really horrible but I think necessary because it cannot go on not unanswered but it, it cannot continue like this no. in the state particularly and it's part of a, a broader conversation um just a week after George Floyd, um, a Palestinian disabled man or special needs was murdered by the Israeli Defense League or army. He was outside the school where he volunteers and because he's special needs, he didn't understand what they were saying and he shot him 10 times and that's erupted in Palestinian lives matters as well and the Palestinians also doing you know murals on the wall between Israel and the Gaza and the West Bank of, of George Floyd. And I think it's really powerful what's, what's going on. And I think it's uniting people's struggle. And, and mm, I didn't know about that. That's, um, thanks for telling me that. That's really powerful. As a mixed-race LGBTQ British man, mm-hmm. what is the main message about your experience that you would like to express i'd say stop trying to fit into the norm stop trying to to normalize yourself or become 
popular, please people, all the points that we've mentioned before, which, uh, yeah, if I could tell myself like 10, 15 years ago, it would just be people are going to love you for who you are. Not that I've, I've been fake, you know, I certainly haven't been that in order to, for people to like me, but from really young age of 12, 13, when I knew that I was gay, and then the small things of, of racism or not liking how I looked and stuff like that or struggling with that, don't put all the pressure on yourself. Don't make yourself the enemy because everyone else around you loves you for who you are. And don't try and fit into a space that you think you need to because... Actually, by not doing that, you're actually creating your own space, which then other people come into. What is your top mental health tip that you've embodied that's helped you during this time? I genuinely don't want to scare any... I've said this to family before anyway, but any family members listening, though, they do. I don't know if I would still be here if it weren't for the piano. I had some suicidal thoughts when I was... um, struggling with the the catastrophe that was being gay to me how it appeared and seemed before I told like any of my friends or like the first few friends and stuff and the thought of of needing to tell my family and so how I dealt with them is uh, was the piano because I started when I was 13 14 yeah in secondary school and since then it's become completely intertwined with my life so I don't like and so for, for me but that's I'm very lucky that, I, that I've got that so you know no matter how down or stressed or whatever I, I have the piano to just completely in fact yeah I think if you can find if anyone can find one thing that allows them to be completely switch off from something and just focus their entire energy on that one thing hopefully for a long period of time I think that is so helpful because your thoughts stew and you yes over everything and with the piano it's 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 really weird when people have people have asked me before like do you think about the notes do you think about what you're playing and nine times out of ten I just I don't think I arrive I put my hands on it and I just go it's yeah it's just like going to another plane of existence almost so I would encourage anyone to, to try anything and there's such a wealth out there now yeah Absolutely. Well, Andy, thank you so much for coming on and dedicating so much time to Thank you. This. Thank you. For, <laughs> it's been an absolute, as I said, the first time I've ever done something like this in my life and it's been an absolute pleasure. I would like to thank Andy for being so open, honest and vulnerable. We spoke for two hours and so I also want to thank him for dedicating that much time to this show. If you would like to support the Black community and the Black LGBTQ plus community, please see the links in the description below. Thank you to Jamie J for production support and thank you so much for listening. This podcast couldn't carry on without you, so thank you. And I hope to see you again next week at home in the mind. <laughs>